Well, last week we had a fun topic, didn't we? We talked about politics. Great topic. This week we've got another doozy. It's about how to handle disagreements over strongly held opinions. You ever experienced that? Maybe in the last week? Maybe in the last hour on your way here to church? Who knows? And it's been my experience, and maybe as you reflect back of your own experience as well as others, that the biggest disagreements, the most explosive arguments, quite often start over the smallest issues, don't they? It's funny how that happens, that the smallest issues just kind of light this little fire, and then they just progressively grow and explode into some of the most heated arguments or conflicts. Let's think about marriage. Isn't that true that in our marriages, sometimes those biggest battles that we have with our spouses start on some pretty small issues? For example, like over the thermostat. How warm are you going to keep the room? Or maybe it's the hair that was left in the sink or the shower. I know for my wife and I, it's something that we have battled with, and I have to be honest, I've went to let her win, is about how you wrap the bread. You know, when I'm done and I'm using the bread, I just kind of, you know, tr- turn the bag, you know, and just kind of put the, put the little bag underneath, you know. Like, no, she says, Anthony, you use a twisty tie. And that's a big conflict with it. And if you go into the cupboards, guess what? The bread has a twisty tie on it. That's not a hill I want to die on. And, and, and the biggest issues often start over the smallest items. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, The Grace Awakening, talked about a church that had a vibrant, very wonderful ministry and incredible outreach into the community, but it split, it had divided, it went from one church into two churches, and it was over an issue that caused division, and it was seemingly small. At the end of the worship service, they had a time for refreshments and coffee, And the division was over whether they put the refreshments and coffee at the back door of the church or toward the door that led to the fellowship area. That was the issue. And now there's two different churches, and they don't have the outreach, the impact, the worship that they once did because a small issue became a big issue. And I want to say this over and over. As I've been in a Christian, as I've been following Jesus, I've been pastoring a church, churches, It is those small issues that lead toward the biggest divisions over time. And as we go into Romans 14, as we journey through Paul's teaching to the church of Rome, the fundamental message and the punchline is this, that when you and I are in conflict, immature people want to win the argument, but mature people in Jesus Christ want to win the relationship. When you and I are in conflict and in disagreement and we have problems with each other, immature people want to win the argument they've got to be right. But mature people who know and are grounded and built up in the gospel, they want to win the relationship and not the argument. And the gospel message is that Jesus died for our sins and he died for our sins because he values us as people. 
And he did what he needed to do on the cross to remove the arguments, to remove the conflicts, to remove the sin, to remove those issues so that he could win us as people, didn't he? And when you and I are saturated with the gospel and we understand the cross, we want to do the same thing in the midst of disagreement and conflicts. We don't want to win the argument. We want to win the relationship because Jesus did not die for the argument. He did not die for the issue that's causing you a conflict with somebody. He died for the person who you are in conflict with. And when we're in the midst of a conflict, we can go at it in one of four ways. We can say, no way. We disagree, and no way. I'm just not going to touch it. We're going to avoid it. We're going to print it out. So we're just going to avoid it, and it'll eventually go away, and it doesn't do that. It gets worse, doesn't it? And then we say, well, no, it's my way. I'm going to come out the winner. I want unconditional surrender. I want this person to plead mercy. I want them to tap out. I want to win on this issue. And folks, if that's your mentality in life, you're a very lonely person, aren't you? And then there's your way. There's a conflict, but you know what? I'll be the sacrifice. I'll take the hit for the team. I'll be the doormat. I'll be the servant. And I'll just always let them have their way. But what happens? You really become bitter, don't you? And you're not being a servant. You're being a coward. Because you really need to talk about what's bothering you. But the biblical way, as we're going to see here in Romans 14, is not no way, my way, your way, but it's our way. How do we come under Jesus Christ? How do we come under his lordship? And how does God lead us to take this issue? And rather than creating greater distance, it brings greater closeness as we develop more understanding, more maturity, and more sympathy within the relationship that we have with each other. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 14, where we talk about why our differences don't need divide. divide. Romans chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that or turn into your Bible app. If you're using a U version or a Bible gateway, whatever it may be, if you don't have either, we'll have it by way of the screen. And we also have the scripture, though it's in pretty small print, in the back of your bulletin. You can use that as well. Romans 14. Church of Rome was facing a rift. It was a small issue, but small issues become big issues when they're not dealt with. And this small issue was going to lead the church to become two churches rather than being one church. And Paul begins to address it in verse 1. He says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One's person faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Verse 2, we'll talk about what the issue is in a moment. But let's lock into verse 1. Paul says, accept one whose faith is weak. The word there, accept, in the Greek is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14, 2, where it says that the Father is prepared or will receive or will accept us into heaven. And the basis of our acceptance of one another in the church is not on whether we emotionally like somebody. 
It's not on how well we get along with them. It's not on their personality or their hobbies, though those can be valuable things. But the core of our acceptance of one another is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you have a disagreement with somebody, when somebody's bugging you, or somebody's got an opinion or a variance or a viewpoint that's different from you, and that it's coming into conflict with you, the basis of your acceptance of, of them is not based on what you emotionally feel. It is based on what Jesus has done. And if his cross has accepted them into his church and into his relationship, then we have an obligation to love them and accept them as well. And so this mentality that often happens when we're in conflict with somebody as we talk about it, we agree to disagree, we may even apologize or whatever, but we walk away with kind of this emotional block in our hearts towards that person. And we say, you know what, we talked about it, we apologize, but the relationship just isn't the same anymore because they held that viewpoint or because of this was said or those kind of things. And there's really more of an increasing gap than a closing of the gap. And Paul says when he says accept one another, the basis of the acceptance is what we believe about our acceptance in Jesus Christ. That he's accepted us through the cross, even despite our sin, our wrong views, our bad attitudes, and all of the rest of it. Now in verse 1, he says, accept one another and don't quarrel over disputable matters. You might want to underline that because that's an important term there. What's a disputable matter? Some of your translations may read over opinions, over different points of view. And disputable matters are those issues that are more important to us than they are to God. They're things that we value, we have strong opinions, strong feelings about, but the Bible is not often very clear on those. Let me talk about three levels of issues of importance within the church and how we need to prioritize our understanding of of. of of what is valuable and what is not. So if you're in a note-writing mood, let me give you the first one, and it's matters of salvation. Matters of salvation. Matters of salvation are the issues that are core to who we are as followers of Jesus. That if we give those things up, we give up who we are as followers of Jesus, such as the Trinity, or the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, or the way of salvation by faith through the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are essential, and if we don't agree upon those, then we don't have fellowship because we're giving up what it's core to be a follower of Jesus. They're non-negotiables. But you know what, all my years of pastoring, I've never found these core matters to be issues that have caused conflict. There's a second level. It's matters of importance. Matters of importance. There's things that are not essential to salvation. We can vary, but they're important to how we live, how we function as a church such as baptism or what you believe about the filling of the Holy Spirit or your understanding about the structure of the leadership of the church. You may not agree, we may not agree, but they're important, and we as a church community have to uphold a particular standard that we believe is biblical. But we also have to give grace for those who may have differences of views. But the third level is matters of indifference. 
matters of indifference. They're non-essential, debatable things. They're, they're preferences. They're, they're things that, that we can really be okay if we have different, very different viewpoints over. Now I want to tell you that in all the times that I've seen conflict, some of the big issues, it's been on this third level where I've seen in churches and families, even in workplaces and businesses and neighbors, where these issues cause the biggest problems. Let's talk about what it looked like for Rome. How were they facing this disputable matter? Well, moving forward, verse 3, it says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. So what is this issue about the one who eats everything and the one who does oh, it's over meat, which we're going to see here in a few moments? It's vegetarians and non-vegetarians, but it's not like today. You see, in Rome, it was a pagan city filled with temples, all kinds of idol worship, and everybody worshipped. If you were a Christian, you would go to the temple and you would worship the idols. And as you were there, you would offer these meat sacrifices, and you would purchase the meat as you would offer to the idol, burn part of it. The idol, of course, didn't consume it. It's idle. It's dumb. It doesn't do anything. So there's a lot of meat left over. And so what would the temples do? Well, they would take the meat and they would sell it to the meat grocers. You would sell it to the meat market. And so that's how people bought their meat. And when they would go and buy the meat, more than likely it had been purchased in an idolatrous temple. But there it was sold for a reduced price. It was still good meat. And there were some Christians who said, you know what? I'm not going to eat that meat. Because it has been offered to an idol, more than likely. So therefore, it's tainted. And because it's been purchased from a pagan temple, you're supporting or promoting or subsidizing pagan worship. And then other Christians say, oh, wait a minute, it's meat, it's cheaper, that's good, it's at a reduced price. And idols are nothing, it's still just meat, it's not tainted, and for me it's no big deal. And to those who didn't eat the meat, they were saying, wait a minute, how can you in a good conscience eat that meat when it has come from a pagan idol? And other Christians says, well, I'm okay with it. You can see where that would be a divisive issue, wouldn't you? For us, it's not an issue, isn't it? I think most of us are okay to go to McDonald's and get a double bacon smokehouse burger. We're totally fine on that. And we don't face this issue today, but I'm going to tell you we face hundreds of others. I have in my journey with Jesus have faced so many issues and conflicts over some disputable matters. Can I talk about some of them I've experienced this morning, vent a little bit with you? You don't have a choice, okay? You're sitting there, I'm up here. Dancing. Well, that's been one. Dancing. You can't dance. Now, I know I can't dance, but that's not a religious reason. That's for other reasons. Remember the movie Footloose? And back, it's not as big of an issue today, but it was kind of taught, you know, in churches. You can't dance, and the reason you can't dance, especially if you're young and single, is that dancing could lead to making out. So therefore, you can't dance. And people became so fixated on dancing, it became such a a big issue that it was almost like they were telling kids, uh, don't make out because it could lead to dancing. And dancing became the big issue. 
And then as I journeyed in my walk with Jesus, I saw that David danced, and dancing wasn't really sinful in and of itself. And, and I started to dance, and then when I started, people told me to stop. They said, you can't dance. But it wasn't for biblical reasons. Coffee. When I first came here as pastor, I had some people say, you know what? We shouldn't have coffee where people can take it from the foyer and bring it into the sanctuary because this is a place of worship and respect and honor and there just shouldn't be the drinking of coffee. It is not showing respect to God. And my viewpoint on it was this, if it helps to keep people awake during the sermon, I'm okay with it. (laughs) But it was a disputable matter, you know. The decision had to be made. And I can respect if you don't want to drink coffee during the worship service, you don't have to. How you dress coming to the worship service in church. How you dress. And some people are like, wait a minute, when you go to worship on Sunday morning, you're going to meet God and you should put on your best clothes Because, you know, if you were going to meet a king or a great official or go to the White House or whatever, you're going to put on your best clothes to be presentable. And would you not want to do less than when you came to worship God on Sunday morning? Then another said, says, well, wait a minute. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. And didn't Jesus wear flip-flops anyway? Isn't that okay? He didn't wear flip-flops, not exactly. But, you know, he did dress in a very common style, which was very different from the religious elite of his day. Jesus was much more relaxed and common in his dressing, and it's a disputable matter. Yoga. Yoga is one of those issues. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't do yoga because yoga comes from Buddhism and it's about emptying your mind and this meditation and it's from the Far East and it's it's antithetical to Christian thought and it's just because of its origins, you can't do it. And then some Christians say, well, wait a minute, I just do it for the stretching and the exercise. And I think about scripture, you know, during the, the gong music that's going on. And and so for me, it's it's not about an Eastern practice. And so I'm okay if I if I do that for a few minutes. Differences on that. And don't get me started on yoga pants, okay? That's a whole nother issue. (laughs) Here's the biggest conflict that I've seen. And I've got a little credibility to speak to this one because I've been, my wife and I have been involved in both. And it's families that homeschool versus families that send their children to public school. And folks, if you want to get into a really major argument, if you get two people who have strong feelings on this on both sides, I just want to say get the popcorn and get ready for a UFC bout because this one gets intense. The homeschool families, and again, Brenda and I have done both, and we're a fan of both, but the homeschool families will look at the public school families and say, okay, you want to go and send them to the place where they have outlawed prayer in school like Nebuchadnezzar did? That's fine. You want your kids to be in an environment where they teach that humanity came from monkeys? That's fine. You want your kid to be in danger of being stabbed by a gang member? No problem. That's good. But we love our children. So therefore, we homeschool, and we teach them a biblical worldview. 
And the public school family's like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad that your son, your daughter, they know how to churn butter and they can make their own clothes. That's really nice. <laughs> but we like our children to learn math. And wait a minute, you know, our kids have to learn to function in some difficult environments and face temptation. And if we're to be salt and light and we always run away from everything that's difficult or hard, how are we going to be that? And folks, I could go on and on and on and on and on about these disputable matters. Paul is going to give us, in our remaining verses as we wind this down, three overarching rules on how we're to navigate these disputable matters and how not to make these small issues turn into big issues. So if you're in a note-writing mood, let me give you the first one, and it is this. Paul would tell us, don't judge. Don't judge. Verse 4, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Verse 4, he says, don't judge. And he says, they're a servant to who? The Lord. The most important biblical confession, and it's said 700 times in the New Testament, is that Jesus is Lord. And when it comes to his church and leading his church, that is the most important understanding is that he is Lord and we are not. And that people are ultimately accountable and will answer the Lord. They are not accountable and will answer to us. And you go into verses 7 to 12 and eight times look at how Paul uses the word Lord to emphasize the point of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that people are accountable to God and not to us in these disputable matters. Verse 7, it says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why are you to judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? In other words, on dancing, on yoga, on school preferences, why are you doing all of this? For we will all stand before God on judgment day. And it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue confess to God. So then each one of us, notice verse 12, so each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is huge. People are ultimately accountable to God. And if they're wrong in a way of their thinking, they're wrong in some of these disputable matters, guess who is capable of correcting them? It is the Holy Spirit, isn't he? And so people aren't ultimately answerable to us on these matters. But you ask, well, what about accountability? I've often said that if I see somebody about to walk off of a cliff morally or spiritually, I don't want to tell them their shoes look nice. I want to say, you know what? I'm concerned about you. You're doing something that is really going to jeopardize or hurt or is going to be really costly spiritually if you keep going down this direction. And sometimes in severe matters, we do have to step in and we do have to confront. 
But when we do so, we do so with the utmost humility. But Paul, what he's talking about here is judging. And judging is very different than holding somebody accountable. Let's talk about judging. Let me talk about some ways that you can take a small issue and just explode it into a really big problem. Way number one you can do that is that if you disagree with somebody or you're questioning somebody on what they're doing, instead of bringing it to prayer and bringing it before God, just allow the feelings to build up until you have this angry, angry frame of mind. Just allow the tension and the pressure to come up. That's the first way, and that's where it all begins. Next, rather than trusting God and kind of looking back and stepping out of the, out of the frame to see the bigger picture, just assume you know all the facts and everything about the situation. Just don't ask questions. Don't get more facts. Don't step and get the big perspective. And when you assume you know all the facts, make sure you've got a couple of Bible verses that are going to back you up to show you that you're really right. The next thing you do with a touch of defiance, talk to some people who are aware of the problem and the person and just let them know that you're willing to talk to them about it, to get their perspective. And you guys can just kind of symbiotically feed off of each other. And that will more convince you of how you're right and the other person is wrong. And then when the discussion occurs or you actually deal with the problem and it starts to move to a serious level, move it to the level where it becomes a win-lose struggle. Move to the place where the person you're in a disagreement with has to come to a place of unconditional surrender. So therefore, all options, other ideas are moved off of the table And in this situation, you've got to win. And folks, you know what happens when we judge like that? We're immature because we want to win the argument rather than winning the relationship. And when we do that, it is a sign to us that we are not making Jesus Christ Lord of our church or Lord of our relationship. Rather than submitting to God, we're playing God in a person's life. And that leads to some big problems. Amen? Amen. Number two, prioritize love. Prioritize love. Verse 14, picking up, it says, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for them it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone whom Christ has died. Speed bumping down to verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. In verse 22, it gets very practical. So whatever you believe about these things... Keep between yourself and God. There are issues that are trigger issues. And that if you talk about them with somebody, if you bring them up, you know it's going to cause a conflict. 
You bring them up and you know there's going to be a fight. You bring them up and you know there's going to be some sparks that start to fly. And what Paul says in the midst of that, when you're aware of that, though you believe something, though privately something is very clear to you, though you believe you are right, Paul would say, put a lid on it. Don't bring it up. Last week I talked about politics and the government. And at the end of both services, I didn't plan on this, but at the end of the service, I prayed for our national and state and local leaders. And I was very moved by the Holy Spirit to do that. And at the end of of both of those, I, I realized, God, I've not been praying for my leaders the way I should. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 tells us to do that. And I've, I've been somewhat negligent. I was telling the staff, you know, that probably on a monthly basis within our service, we should be praying for our leaders nationally, state, and, and locally. And we can all agree on that, can't we? Because the Bible says we're to do that. That is clear. But you know what? There's probably political preferences, political views. We don't all agree on it, Right? For example, some people, when it comes to the current situation nationally, they look at the president, and they're one of these people who's like, hashtag never Trump. I'm a Christian, and, and I can't vote and support Donald Trump. And the reason I can is because of his tweets and his crudeness and all this stuff that he's in, some of the stuff in his past and his, his attitudes, and because of that, I, I can't do that. But then we go too far when we look at another believer, another person, and say, but if you're a Christian, you can't vote for him or support him either. And then there's other people who says, well, wait a minute, I, I don't want Donald Trump as my pastor. I don't want him as my Sunday school teacher. But he's the president. And he's doing so much good. He's standing up for the pro-life cause. He's holding back the restrictions that others are wanting to, to bring on religious freedoms. And there's a lot of good that he's doing. He's not a perfect person, but he's kind of like Cyrus, the pagan leader that God anointed to, to do good. And so because of that, I, I believe I can support him. And on an issue like that, the Bible says privately, You're free to believe what you want to believe. You can practice what you want to practice. You can vote who you want to vote for. But within your family or a relationship or your neighbor or co-worker, if it is a sensitive issue and you can't have an intelligent, fair conversation over it, then don't bring it up. Don't allow it to be a source of division because it has been for so many people over the last two to three years. You see, there's things that I can believe and there's things that I hold to strongly and I have every right to do that privately and I can practice them privately. But when I do them publicly, it could be a source of offense. It could be a cause of hurt. It could be a source of division. And so though privately it's okay for me to believe and to do publicly, if I am to exercise love, I need to be sensitive and I need to allow love to guide and restrain my personal liberty. And the principle is this, is that immature people on things like this want to win the argument, but mature people who understand the gospel want to win the relationship. That's a big difference. Truth number three is this. Seek spiritual health. Seek spiritual health. Verse 17. 
Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Again, it's not about winning the argument over stuff that doesn't really matter, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. You disagree with somebody. You've got a difference of opinion. You've got a difference of viewpoints. It is so important that within our church, within our community, you say, you know what? It's okay that you think that way. It's okay. I really think you're wrong, but you know what? There's a place for you here. There's a place for you in our community. There's a place for you in our church. There's a place for you and I. And so because of that, we value you and you promote the things that bring peace and righteousness within relationships. And too often it's the petty issues that tear apart our vision over the bigger things. And we become immobilized over an obsession with the insignificant. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not about that. Verse 19, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. The Greek tense for make every effort, it's hard to replicate in the English, but it would read something like this. Make every effort, make every effort, keep on making every effort, never stop making efforts. In other words, the garden of unity must be constantly tended, watered and weeded and grown and developed. And we can't just say, okay, we're unified, things are okay, and then walk away. The effort of relationships within our marriages, our churches, our neighbors, our homes, our communities is something that takes continuous effort. We have to constantly apply ourselves to it. I want to ask our worship team and our prayer team to come forward. And if you need prayer this morning, our prayer team will be over to the left side of our sanctuary. And they can pray about any, any issue, any struggle you're facing right now. And we want you to utilize that if that's where you're at. And we're going to read the scriptures, a scripture here in the moment before we go to our worship time. But I'm going to invite you to stand. <clears throat> And when we're in a conflict, we're in a disagreement, there are four ways we can approach it. One way says, no way. I'm not going to go there. I'll just bury my head in the sand and hopefully it'll get better, and it doesn't. This gets worse, doesn't it? Then there's the way that says, my way, I've got to win. I've got to come out on top. The person I'm in disagreement with, they need to tap out. And if you live that kind of life, you're a lonely person. And then there's your way. Well, I'm just going to lay down and let people walk all over me. I'm just going to be the servant, but you're not being a servant. You're being a coward because you're in a relationship and you need to express your viewpoint. But the biblical way, Romans 14, and the way of the gospel is our way. We're going to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find the way to walk in this together in a way that leads to peace, in a way that leads to righteousness. So as we go to worship or we close our time with worship this morning, I'd like us to read the next, the first three verses of the next chapter from Romans 15. So together, let's read this by way of the screen. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak 
and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me.